I love your church. I love your pastor. Love your city. Love what you guys are doing with sunshine and avocados. Keep it up. <laughs> Lord Jesus, I pray that you would take uh, your word and that you would let it be like you say, like seed that would find in our hearts a good soil where it would take root and grow to bear fruit. I pray that the fruit of what we talk about today would be born in our midst today, but would be born even more so in all of the days and weeks and months and years of our lives to come. In Jesus' name, amen. So I'd love to jump right in with two stories. Uh, first one, April 2020, I'm pastoring a church that I planted in New York City when I get a phone call from a really close friend who is also a pastor leading a church on the West Coast, and he says, hey, I know this is going to sound crazy, but I'm calling on behalf of our elder board to see if you want my job. I started laughing. John Mark, you know there's no way I'm going anywhere? I know, I told them you'd say that, but will you please just pray about it for one week before you tell me absolutely not? Sure. So a few days later, I took a walk and I prayed and said, okay, God, I'm going to walk for an hour. And if you've got anything to say about me, to me about this Portland thing, I'm listening. And I had this simple picture come to mind of a plant along with the phrase, plant Kirsten in soil where she will flourish. There's a whole lot more I could say, but... Uh, to summarize, on that walk, I gained the sense that maybe God wanted to reawaken dormant parts of Kirsten, character traits from her teenage self that she had deferred in following my dreams alongside me. And I never told Kirsten, my wife, about that, but I just held it with me as a matter of prayer. One thing led to another, and I said yes to this trip to Portland to explore the possibility of becoming the lead pastor of Bridgetown Church. And the day before I left on that trip, I read the passage from Luke 10, where Jesus sends out the 72, and my eyes were really drawn to this one bit of his instructions. When you enter a house, first say, peace to this house. If someone who promotes peace is there, your peace will rest on them. If not, it will return to you. And so I asked God, well, what does it mean for my peace to rest? And I jotted down a few specific prayers, and I said, all right, Lord, if my peace rests on this house called Bridgetown in Portland, then I want you to answer these prayers very obviously and directly while I'm there. I'll share two of those prayers with you. The first was that Kirsten would feel parts of herself reawakening and that she would share that with me voluntarily, just like that picture I had had but had never told her about. The second was not just a willingness to put up with a radical commitment to prayer, but a desire to go there with me. It was the culture of the church that I led in New York. It's the only way that I know how to lead, and I was already a part of this 24-7 prayer thing. So the next day, we get to Portland, and we arrive at our Airbnb, and we're waiting on this babysitter to come and watch our kids while we go have dinner with the elders, who I'm assuming are going to interview me or something like that. And as we're sitting there waiting, Kirsten says, you know what's weird? Is since our plane landed earlier this afternoon, I keep on thinking about my teenage self, even remembering parts of me that have kind of like dissipated over the years. And I'm just curious if we end up doing this thing and moving across the country, if God will reawaken those parts of me. And I was like, huh, <laughs> that is interesting. 
And then we get to this dinner and Peter, one of the elders, sits down next to me and he says, so John Mark tells me that you're really into prayer. And I said, well, yeah, I mean, I am a Christian pastor. So you would hope. Um, and he said, well, have you ever heard of this group called 24-7 Prayer? I said, sure have. And he said, I've been looking into what they're doing and, and I'm curious if you came here, if you'd be open to exploring some of that as well. And I said, yeah, I'm relatively open to that. And to make a long story really short, all of my peace will rest prayers were answered, not just in that week in Portland, but within the first 24 hours of our arrival. God knocked me on my back because I had to be knocked on my back because I had never made a decision that would so profoundly affect so many other people who had no say in the decision that I was making. And I can honestly say that so much undeserved blessing has followed on the heels of that decision. Second story. In New York City, I worked alongside a pastor named Zach, a close friend of mine. And a couple of years before I ever thought about making that move to Portland, Zach navigated a really similar discernment process. He felt an invitation from the Lord. Lindsay, his wife, was coming increasingly alive spiritually, and she was starting to see this intersection between her vocational desires and her spiritual desires. And she discovered this uh, graduate school in San Francisco that offered a degree in exactly the niche that she was trying to move into. So she applies and she gets in, but they live in New York City. It just so happens that Zach is also really resonating with the faith expression that's being fostered by this group of churches in the Bay Area. And so after a prayerful discernment process, they did exactly what we did. They said tearful goodbyes to the church that they had helped plant and grow up from infancy. They said goodbye to the city and the neighbors that, that had become like family to them and the place that they thought their kids were gonna grow up and they move across the country in an adventure with God like Abraham and Sarah. And Zach couldn't find a ministry position at that group of churches he'd resonated with. In fact, he couldn't find any ministry position at any church in the Bay Area. And I can still remember the first phone call that I had with him, the first really lengthy conversation after he had been there, somewhere between six and 12 months. And he was driving home from the coffee shop that he worked at more than an hour away as an early morning barista to pick up his son where he played stay-at-home father in the afternoons while Lindsay was in school. And he was disappointed and confused and beginning to grow a little bit depressed. Lindsay's program turned out to be underwhelming and life got so hard and money got so tight that she dropped out before finishing it. Zach did not work in full-time ministry again for more than five years, a window within which they moved back to his hometown because his mother very suddenly and tragically passed. God knocked them on their backs with his voice and they followed him in radical obedience and what followed was not a season of blessing but one of suffering. So did God woo them into an important but difficult chapter in their story? And if he did, why didn't he just say that up front? I mean, they would have followed him anywhere. How can you trust a God that uh, speaks to you with a smile on his face even if he's leading you off a cliff? Or scariest of all possibilities, was it not God they heard and were following at all? And if it wasn't, how could they be sure that they had ever heard God speak to them before? 
You see, to hear and live by God's voice, it would seem, is among the most powerful and the most painful, the most potent and the most dangerous aspects of Christian spirituality. Nothing matters more than learning to discern the voice of God, and yet few things in life are so susceptible to pain, abuse, delusion, and deception. Who among us has not cried out to God and then just been left in silence in the waiting to hear something back? Who among us hasn't been hurt by the misuse or abuse of God's voice by an authority figure? And who among us hasn't been enlivened by the still small whisper of God's voice that we learn increasingly as we follow the Good Shepherd? Who among us hasn't had some version of identifying with the first story I shared? And who among us hasn't had some version of identifying with the second? The fourth century Christian monastic John Cassian, he spoke of prayer as becoming a prudent money changer. You see, in his time, Roman coinage was the only currency and counterfeits were quite common. And so a money changer had to become so familiar with the real thing that they could tell a counterfeit and tell it quickly. Just by the weight of the coin in their hand and the type of metal that was used and the engraving that was on it, they could throw it out or exchange it immediately. This, says Cassian, is the work of prayer. Become so familiar with the, with the voice of God that you can tell a counterfeit and tell it quickly. That, differentiating God's voice amidst all of the competing counterfeit noise is technically called discernment. So I get to be with you not just this Sunday, but for two Sundays to talk about a single theme, hearing God. Today we're gonna to talk about the practice of hearing God personally for myself, which is frequently referred to as discernment. And next week we'll talk about hearing God communally within a family of believers like this, which is typically referred to as prophecy. Discernment, I would define it this way at least, is the practice of attentively listening to God amidst the complexity of a sin nature and a fallen world. And I want to explore this one theme in four major parts, whispers, lies, distractions, and discernment. All right? Here we go. First, God's whisper. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going further. This, in my opinion, is without doubt the most interesting turn of phrase in the story that Gare read just a moment ago. I mean, is this just a charade, or is Jesus really content to go on uh, walking past them with them never recognizing who he is? Or is Jesus doing this as sort of a show to bait them into a dinner invitation where he's gonna reenact the Lord's Supper so that they suddenly realize in the climactic moment who they're dealing with? I mean, as an isolated event, I guess you could come to either conclusion, but here's the thing. This is not an isolated event. It's a major biblical theme. Let me show you. Let's rewind in the biblical story all the way back to 1 Kings chapter 19. Elijah sets up a spiritual drama for the ages, challenging hundreds of prophets of Baal to a showdown to see who the one true God really is. The prophets of Baal pray and pray and nothing happens. G or, um, Elijah prays and fire falls on Yahweh's altar. It's a familiar story. Many of you will know it. It's a moment one of the standout moments in the whole of the Hebrew Bible for God's presence and power. It is the moment that cements Elijah as a key figure in uh, Israel's biblical history, and it's a moment that gets Elijah into a whole lot of trouble. 
He's a wanted man. He then flees as a fugitive. And after living and hiding in the wilderness in complete isolation for 40 days, he climbs Mount Horeb to cry out to God. And I imagine that he must have made the ascent up Mount Horeb with a great amount of expectation because this is the very mountain on which Moses received the Ten Commandments. It is the mountain that Moses would go on to meet with God that he returned from with his face glowing with God's presence. It reminds me of a close friend of mine who made a pilgrimage a few years ago to the Outer Hebrides, which is the, or, or to Hunt, I'm sorry, which is the site of the Moravian revival. And he went there to say, God, do what you did here in my time and place. I want to see you act in these ways in my days. You better believe he made that trip with a little more expectation than just his average prayer time, right? He's going to put his feet on holy ground to say, God, I need to hear your voice in my life now. That's Elijah with his quads burning while he's climbing up Mount Horeb, right? It has to be. You don't make a pilgrimage to sacred ground just for any other prayer time. And so Elijah goes to say, I'm desperate. I need you. I need to hear the voice of the God who sent the fire, the voice of the God who wrote on Moses' tablets and made his face glow. Speak to me, Lord. Here I am. And then sure enough, The Lord said, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face. A gentle whisper, famously translated by the King James, a still, small voice. But the phrase that I want to draw your attention to isn't the famous one. It's the one that we tend to read over quickly without even noticing it. Go and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Interesting, huh? It's the identical phrase from that Emmaus account that comes hundreds of years later. And the plot only thickens if you rewind a little bit further back to the Moses moment that Elijah's reenacting. Then the Lord said, there's a place near me where you may stand on a rock. When my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft in the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. I mean, this is arguably the peak moment of divine intimacy in the whole of the Old Testament, and there it is again, God just passing by. Job chapter 9 says, he alone stretches out the heavens and treads on the waves of the sea. When he passes me, I cannot see him. When he goes by, I cannot perceive him. And this Old Testament theme, it just continues on in the life of Jesus. A little while before his walk on the road to Emmaus, we see Jesus taking another walk with his disciples, this one on water. Mark chapter 6 Shortly before dawn, he went out to them walking on the lake. He was about to pass by them. So just to be clear, Jesus, one of the few events that three out of four of your reputable biographers thought so important about your life that they had to include it in their famously scant manuscripts, and you left the whole thing up to chance, that your disciples wouldn't notice you amidst the raging, louder storm that they were fighting for their lives against? You were really willing just to walk on water 
right by their boat without them noticing you and they just catch up with you on the shore the next day? Certainly seems like it. Which has to make you wonder if this is the only time Jesus walked on water, right? (laughs) Bring all that with you back to Emmaus. Okay, earlier that very morning, Jesus has pushed back his own tombstone. He has chosen to spend the day of his resurrection with a couple of disappointed and disillusioned disciples who are walking away hanging their heads. And beginning with Moses and the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Jesus spends hours with these two talking about the Bible and how the whole story points to him and they don't realize he's the guy. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going farther. It's the evening of the original Easter. Jesus himself has been preaching the first resurrection sermon in human history, and they don't recognize him. The same Jesus content to walk past his disciples as they fought against the storm seems content to walk past these disciples as they fight against their own disappointment. And then finally at the meal, he breaks the bread and they realize who they've been dealing with all day and who's been walking with them all along. This whole drum I'm beating, it's summarized most poetically in John chapter one. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. God himself passed right by the vast majority of people that saw him face to face and heard his voice with their own ears. This, my friends, is the world's greatest and most understated tragedy, that our Savior so identifies with us that we mostly miss him in our midst. You see, what I'm trying to draw your attention to is this, that God's native language is a whisper. And a whisper is hard to hear and easy to ignore. So what if God is speaking to you far more than you currently know? And what if most of your divine encounters with his presence to this point in your life are just Craigslist misconnections, like holy moments that could have been, but the Lord passed right by you? We tend to miss God right in our midst, not because he's too extraordinary, but because he's too ordinary. Despite the consistent revelation of scripture, we all still tend to look for God more in the wind and the earthquake and the fire than we do listen for him in the whisper. We still climb our own Mount Horebs with expectation, right? When this preacher speaks or at this particular conference, at this worship experience, when I'm around this prophetic group, when I go on this silent retreat, we still pigeonhole God's voice into special times and special places through special methods when all the while he's about to pass by you. So what if you could know him, not just at the table in the evening, but all along the road to Emmaus? And what if you could hear him, not just on top of Mount Horeb, but even in the valley of suffering? What if God speaks most frequently and maybe even most profoundly, not in the climactic spiritual moment you've built up in your imagination, but in the ordinary moments and unclimactic events of your everyday life? But of course, this does beg the obvious question too. I mean, why doesn't God just yell? Right, why play it coy and make it hard on us? Because when God does speak in the most obvious, undeniable ways, it seems to be relatively ineffective. I mean, Elijah's fire spectacle didn't seem to do a whole lot of good if you read the whole story. It leads to a manhunt, not a revival. 
Jesus' miracles seem to be only subjectively effective, meaning it's in the eye of the beholder, whether they reveal him to be God or whether they can just be explained away as something else. Even the empty tomb led not immediately to a widespread awakening, but instead to persecution, imprisonment, and public lashings for anyone who dared believe it. So maybe God whispers not because he's evasive, but because he's intimate. Because the louder his voice gets, the more polarizing he becomes. And then some want to make use of his power for their vision, like the disciples that were planning the size and location of their thrones before they knew where the story was really going. And other people want to dismiss his power so they can hold on to their illusion of control, like the priests who were, uh, had so much prestige and status to surrender if Jesus really was king. You see, maybe God whispers because it's the only way that he can get what he really wants most, what was lost in Eden, and that is to walk with you in the the cool of the day, that you might know him as friend in the ordinary moments of your everyday life. Maybe God whispers because he's intimate and loving and powerful but gentle. There's so much beauty in the fact that God speaks in a whisper and experientially. There's at least as much complication because there's a clever impersonator vying for my attention for the sake of death, not for life. And that takes us from God's whisper to the deceiver's lies. Why is it so difficult to hear God's voice and to know God's direction? Well, one of the reasons is because God's got competition. I mean, Jesus insists again and again that while he is a good shepherd leading and guiding you and I by his voice, there is equally a deceiver who is lying to us, impersonating the shepherd all along. Your inner world is a rowdy room filled with competing voices, not a serene place of quiet and rest. And it is hard to hear a whisper among all that competing noise. So how do you and I tell the voice of God from the voice of the deceiver? Well, God's whisper is heard at the depth of the soul, while the deceiver's lies appeal to the shallow places of the ego. The great reformer Martin Luther once said, our nature by the corruption of, of the first sin can become so deeply curved in on itself that it only bends the best gifts of God toward itself and enjoys them, but it also fails to realize that it so wickedly, cursedly, and viciously seeks all things, even God, for its own sake. In other words, you and I are forever tempted toward self-absorption to imagine ourselves as the center of the story, dethroning Jesus and confusing the sound of the good shepherd with an imposter. And when my ego becomes the ear that I'm listening from, rather than my soul, I risk the possibility of even my spiritual life devolving into a self-centered form of narcissism that is focused on me, not thee. Scripture teaches that when our spiritual enemy it can no longer tempt us as an angel of darkness, he changes his tactic and begins to appeal to us as an angel of light. And St. Ignatius, who is probably the most broadly respected theologian in church history when it comes to the practice of discernment, says, it is a mark of, evil, of the evil spirit to assume the appearance of an angel of light. He begins by suggesting thoughts that are suited to a devout soul and ends by suggesting his own. All to say that Satan, the father of lies, the deceiver, can even turn my desire for God's presence into a spiritual maturity inhibitor. You see, when our deceiver hits roadblocks in tempting us toward obvious objective sins, 
He begins to instead tempt us to take our desire for God and pursue it from the place of our ego rather than our soul. Our desire for God's nearness becomes a self-serving version of spiritual thrill-seeking. Our care for the poor becomes a way for us to grow bitter toward our brothers and sisters within the church that aren't doing as much as we seem to be doing. Our love for our neighbor becomes a desire to gain a spiritual notch on our belts rather than to offer myself in sacrificial hidden love for another. The enemy of your soul is very willing to nudge you toward a stage where you stand leading worship songs or stand in an impoverished village where you dig wells or sit at church leadership tables and help make decisions so long as he can magnify the clever disguise that you wear of a pious spirituality. The enemy of your soul is equally willing to guide you into a brothel or into a prayer meeting so long as the end is to feed and strengthen your ego rather than your soul. And that means that the key to discerning the voice of the Holy Spirit, not the voice of the deceiver, is to pay attention to not what is the voice saying, but what is this voice doing to me as I'm listening to it? Is it inflaming the deepest part of me? Or is it pulling on the more shallow depths of my ego? Discernment, in large part, is the spiritual practice of differentiating between the listening ear of my ego and my soul. Let's just say that I'm uh, in an argument with my wife, Kirsten, okay? Let's say, hypothetically speaking, that she never puts the caps back on things. She just rests them on the top like a trap for whoever's gonna get them next. Let's just say that's a regular occurrence in my home. And so then again, hypothetically here, each morning when I go and reach into my fridge and get the almond milk to make a smoothie and I shake it like it tells you to do, it spills all over me in the floor. Now, if you were to barge into my home at that very moment and say, Tyler, how do you feel about Kirsten? I could share my immediate reaction. I feel like she's wildly irresponsible for setting milk carton traps for me daily. <laughs> I feel like she's disrespecting nut farmers from all over California who have worked hard for this imitation dairy. I could answer you with my superficial feelings based on the most recent circumstance, but I could also answer you in a completely different way based on deeper feelings. Right? I love Kirsten. She is the most admirable, quietly courageous person I've ever met. She's the most uniquely beautiful person that I've ever seen, and she is alive, more alive with adventure than anyone I've ever been around. You see, I could talk to you about my shallow feelings about her, about my deep feelings about her. And this is how you discern the voice of God from the voice of the deceiver, deep calls to deep, as it says in the Psalms. God appeals to the deep longings within us, our deceiver appeals to our shallow hungers. God nourishes our soul while the deceiver massages our ego. And that takes us to the practice of discernment and the reality of distraction. And I'm a bad news first kind of guy, so let's start with the distraction. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. Now that's an interesting phrase in our story, isn't it? They were kept 
from recognizing him. So there's more going on here than just poor recall or plain human error. Greater forces are at play. And there's a collision of distractions all going on within these uh, disciples at the same time. First, there's the uh, physiological distraction. Like we can gather from Jesus' resurrection appearances that none of his disciples seem to recognize his physical form at first. So there's a physiological difference or distraction that is inhibiting them. Secondly, there's a psychological distraction. I mean, you'd have to imagine that these two had a 0% expectation that they would run into Jesus on the way to Emmaus. They had seen him executed 72 hours before. But primarily, there's a spiritual distraction at play here. Because Luke does seem to indicate what's going on here is more than just physical and psychological. They were kept from recognizing him. The English kept is the Greek krateo, literally meaning that their eyes were held onto or grabbed or seized. So some spiritual force is actively involved in their temporary blindness. And depending on your theology, you may have different interpretations of the active agency behind that force. But the point that I want to make and what I want to draw your attention to is that this very phrase is turned around a little bit later in the story on the very same day. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. Again, the text seems to indicate an active agent, a spiritual force, opening their eyes to see the Holy Spirit. In other words, we cannot recognize Jesus by ourselves. We need the help of the Spirit to open our eyes and ears. Learning to hear God's whisper is not a method or a technique that we master. It is a grace we are given, a gift, something that that God trains us in. But if you ask for God's voice in your life, proceed with caution because of the reality of discernment. If you rewind in Elijah's story before the still small whisper on Mount Horeb and before the fire falls on the altar at Mount Carmel, you will discover a seemingly random series of events that I believe to be an incredible gift because they show us God training a mature prophet in hearing his voice. This is 1 Kings chapter 17. I'll begin in verse 2. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah, leave here, turn eastward, and hide in the Kareth Ravine, east of the Jordan. You will drink from the brook, and I've directed the ravens to supply you with food there. So contextually at this time, uh, Elijah is living at a time of heightened political corruption, foreign occupation, and oppression of his people. God then tells Elijah to leave the city, go live alone in the wilderness, drink from this wild brook, and he'll be delivered groceries daily by ravens. This is an invitation to wild, costly obedience. Not to mention, it seems entirely unproductive. This in no way addresses the corruption, occupation, and oppression that Elijah, and presumably God, is urgently concerned about. And Elijah does it. He goes and lives by the brook. He eats from the ravens. He says yes to God. God proves faithful, and none of it seems urgently helpful or particularly important. Keep on reading in the chapter, verse 7. Sometime later, the brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land. Now, hang on. I skipped a part. Verse 1 of this chapter, just six verses prior, at God's direction, Elijah prophesied a multiple-year drought in the land. And then God sends Elijah to go live by a brook, 
a water source dependent on rain. These are conflicting messages, Yahweh. But Elijah follows anyway. He prophesies the drought, goes and lives by the brook, and God is faithful until, predictably, the, the brook dries up. Because, you know, the whole drought thing. The very next verse. Then the word of the Lord came to him. Go at once to Zarephath in the region of Sidon and stay there. I've directed a widow there to supply you with food. When Elijah gets to this widow's house, she has no food. And then God miraculously uses Elijah to fill her cupboards with food and then to supernaturally heal her son. So, from Elijah's perspective, God is speaking to him. He's radically saying yes. And the results are occasionally miraculous, but often seemingly unproductive. And the results never seem to be aimed at the core issue, the occupation, oppression, and corruption of his people. The question of Elijah's early prophetic years is would God do all of this just to train one person in hearing his voice? Would God do all of this just so Elijah would trust him enough to pray and wait for the fire to fall on Mount Carmel? Would God do all of this just so Elijah would know him well enough to seek him out? in all of the pain that was going to come running after him after he prayed for that fire to fall on Mount Carmel. You see, by the brook, God taught Elijah dependence and trust. And then at the widow's house, God taught Elijah compassion for the widow and the fatherless. God is putting his heart in Elijah before he pours his power through Elijah. Bobby Clinton, a respected scholar from Fuller Seminary, just up the road from here, says that his reading of both scripture and church history is that pretty much everything God does in our lives up to about our 60s is just preparation. If there's spiritual fruit in your life, then it's bonus. But what God is doing is training you, preparing you. He's putting his heart in you before he pours his power through you. The aim is preparation, it is discernment, it's learning his voice that your life might become an open channel between heaven and earth. And that means that God's whisper to you will be a lot like it was to Elijah. At times confusing, seemingly unproductive, not always easy to weave into a coherent narrative, and it will require radical obedience. Elijah's later years enliven me with faith, his early years challenge me to courage. You see, God's whisper tends to be equal parts enlivening and terrifying, resonating deeply with our souls while also coming at a cost and requiring a great amount of risk, and we never graduate from this. You will never reach a stage of spiritual maturity in your life where God's voice is not equal parts terrifying and enlivening. You will never reach a place where it is all fruit with no cost. You will never reach a place where it is all faith with no risk. We never graduate. Elijah didn't, and neither do we. The second your spirituality has become comfortable, I'd start to wonder if it's God that you're still listening to. Living by God's voice is not a method. It is a radical commitment to terrifying obedience, and it is a stubborn resilience to risk your own foolishness. I want to read to you from my journal a prayer that I wrote within the last year that I never intended to read in public, but felt led to. I started reading Power Healing by Wimber on the flight. In the introduction, he shares the story of his heart condition, his journey toward his own healing, and his reticence and lack of faith to ask for healing prayer for himself, 
even while leading the masses to pray for the miraculous. I have a torn Achilles, have thrown my back out and have chronic eczema. I've preached on healing and led a healing prayer training in the last two months. Still, I haven't asked for healing prayer for myself a single time. Why not? I lack the faith that God will do it, and my prior experience, even if not disappointing, outweighs my obedience. I also lack the humility. I like the feeling of the mic on my face and the notes on my iPad more than I like the feeling of vulnerability, risk, and foolishness. But look at Samuel, anointing the youngest child of a rural family as king in the midst of a powerful monarchy that's ongoing. How foolish. And yet he heard the voice of the Lord and responded. I feel suspicious that no one gets in on what God is doing by keeping human honor intact. Dear God, if you want, you can embarrass me. I just want to learn to trust you more fully. I want to know your voice more clearly. Father, forgive me for clinging to security I've created for myself. Fragile security, sure to crumble no matter how carefully I handle it. Holy Spirit, let me know your voice and risk everything in obedience to your voice. Make me a fool like Samuel. Amen. I read that to you just as my way of showing you that I haven't graduated, that we never graduate from God's voice being equal parts enlivening and terrifying if it's him that we're going to follow. If we're going to ask God for his fire to fall, we must equally be willing to allow God to train us in perceiving his voice amidst all the competing noise. And all of this means, among other things, that discernment does not begin with life's big decisions and grand occasions. Discernment is the daily practice of living attentively and responsively to the voice of God. Right? If you and I wait until a career change or a cross-country move or a major financial decision to talk to God about his activity in our lives, we're unlikely to find clarity uh, because we are untrained in listening to and following his whisper. In the words of Ruth Haley Barton, the practice of discernment recognizes and responds to the presence and activity of God both in the ordinary moments and the larger decisions of our lives. Become a prudent money changer. Day after day, grow so familiar with God's voice that you can tell a counterfeit and tell it quickly. That's discernment. So is there a practice from the way of Jesus that trains us daily in recognizing God's whisper among all the competing noise? Yes, there is. Examine. The prayer of examine, or the examination of consciousness, as it's sometimes called, is a way of prayer derived from St. Ignatius. It's typically practiced in the evening. Every tradition in church history has a spoken or unspoken, like primary or base spiritual practice, right? For Catholics, it's going to mass. For non-denominational Protestants like yourselves, it's typically the quiet time or some version of that. For Jesuits, it's the examine. This is that central. And praying the examine is typically summed up, and this is admittedly a simplified version, but it's a great place to start. It's summed up in four movements. Uh, review the day with God. Where did I feel furthest from God? Where did I feel closest to God? And in live it all, one prayer for tomorrow. 
So I pray they examine every day on my, on my commute home from work. As I am making my way between my office and my home, I always pray the same prayer. Father, and I do it out loud, Father, today I, and then I just start telling God about my day, like everything I did that day from the moment I woke up until the evening, like he's a friend asking me to recount the events of my day to him. And as I recount the events, I become aware of the next two movements. And then I say, Lord, today I felt closest to you when? And today I felt furthest from you when? And in light of remembering God's activity in my day, I then pray one simple request for the next 24 hours of my life. Hindsight is 2020. And as true as that phrase is in the way that we navigate everyday life, it is equally true in the way that we navigate our spirituality. God's activity is more visible to us in hindsight. It is easier to perceive his presence when we look back than in the present moment. Praying the examine is the practice of recognizing God's voice to me in hindsight that I might learn to discern his presence, voice, and invitations to me in the present moment. As I learn to recognize God in hindsight, something amazing begins to happen. Slowly but surely, I learn to recognize him in the present, to know him not just at the dinner table in the evening, but all along the road to Emmaus, and to recognize him increasingly in all the moments when the Lord is about to pass by. So we'll close here. John chapter 10. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them, and they follow me. This is the mark, the distinguishing quality of all who follow me, says Jesus. They listen to my voice. But that is not all that Jesus says. He tells us he's a good shepherd who leads by his voice and equally a good shepherd who leaves the 99 to go after the one who's lost, to find those who don't recognize his voice, who never learn to hear, or who get distracted and stop listening to him somewhere along the way. He says he's a good shepherd who will wander with you however far you need to go and however long you need to walk before you realize it's him. And it's his voice that has been chasing you down the whole way that will guide you back home. Jesus says his voice is the distinguishing mark of all who will follow him. And Jesus says there is no place you can go, no length you can wander, that he will not go after you. So whoever you are, Whatever you have done and whatever you haven't done, you are not disqualified from hearing the voice of God. In fact, he's coming after you, calling. It's his voice that brings you in and it's his voice that brings you home. Let's stand and respond together. There's, there's going to be an invitation to come and respond for prayer, and I just want to say this one thing about responding in prayer. Sometimes you hear a sermon, and you jot down a couple notes, or you recall an insight, and sometimes when the Word of God is open, deep calls to deep, and there's some deep but very real place in your soul that is touched, and that's God speaking to you. And when God speaks, it's because he wants to act, right? There's no separating God's voice and God's action. Let there be light, and there's light. When God speaks, it's because he wants to act in your life. 
And the reason that we respond, that we move our bodies, that we take action in response to God speaking to us is because there is separation between my intention and my action, unlike God. I know quite well that God can speak to me in a moment, I can have a great insight, and then an hour from now I can be thinking nothing about except what I'm gonna have for dinner tonight. And so if deep has been calling to deep, I just want to encourage you to respond in prayer when you're given an invitation in the moment because God's speaking to you because he wants to act in your life. He wants to redeem you further. And if you can't take this first step here, surrounded by family that loves you, just as a guest, I just want to be honest with you, you don't stand a chance out there. So we've got to start in here together. All right, let's respond.